hi there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding, and thanks for listening. It's 350 BC. You wake up from a sound sleep in the ancient Greek city-state of Athens. Outside, the sun is just peeping over the horizon, but you're late already. You quickly break your fast with bread dipped in wine and head out to meet your first client of the day. Like any successful freelancer, your clients are everything to you. As such, your people skills need to be on point today if you're going to make the favorable impressions needed in order to get paid for your work and, most importantly, be asked back when your clients have new questions in need of a yes or no answer. For someone who supposedly can see the future, the uncertainty of freelance work can be unsettling. A flock of birds circles overhead in the early morning light. You smile as your eyes trace their arc through the sky. For all you know, you could be watching this exact flock later, interpreting their flight under the watchful eye of your client, who's likely to have his own view of what their movements mean. As you travel along the road, you're grateful you've had a good night's sleep and that your mind is clear. As a Greek mantis, you aren't expected to channel any kind of direct message from the gods today. That was the purview of the oracles who delivered prophecies through divine intervention. But you'll still need to convince your client that you know what the omens you'll observe together actually mean. The morning sun rides high above when you reach your destination at last. Your first client is waiting at the door already, waving you over. You wave back and walk quickly to him, ready to advise him on a critical decision. For a price, of course. Hey there, I'm Dr. Karen Bellinger, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome to another episode of Working Over Time, the podcast that examines society through the lens of work, over time, and across cultures. Today, I'm joined by ancient historian Dr. Owen Rees. We're going to be discussing a profession that in some form or another has been around since the dawn of humankind and has grown into a monster modern industry worth billions. That's divination or the reading of signs for what they might predict of future events. Today on the show, we'll look at the life of a mantis, a private divination specialist in ancient Greece. Who's ready to open their third eye and peer into the future? here today with Dr. Owen Reese, who's a history lecturer and has authored two books on ancient Greek warfare. He's a career historian with a PhD in ancient history from Manchester Metropolitan University, an MA in history from the University of Nottingham, and a BA in ancient history from University of Reading. Owen studies warfare and society and the pre-modern world generally, but his passion is ancient Greece. He loves bringing to life the sounds, smells, colors, and characters from the dusty pages of the past and sharing them with as many people as possible. A man after my own heart, Owen, I'm so delighted to have you with us today to give us a little spin around the world of an ancient Greek mantis. Yes, thank you very much for having me. Um, I'm really looking forward to talking this through. Um, it's, a really, it's a really exciting topic, and it's something um, I delve into a lot uh, 
I mean, you you describe me as a military historian. That's how I describe myself. But in the ancient world, military history is as much the history of religion as it is the military of battles. Um, it's the history of experience. It's the history of people. And it's the history of uh, belief and where religion sits in that. So yeah, very excited to talk about this today. Oh, and can you just kick us off by providing a brief context for our discussion? What What is the time period we're considering and where does Greece stand in the world at this time? Okay, so the time period we're going to focus on is uh, conventionally referred to as the classical period, the classical okay. Greek period. So we're talking 5th century and 4th century BC. Now, this is the, uh, the world of ancient Greece where anyone who's done any sort of reading or watched films based in this period is the one they're most familiar with. This is the world of Socrates. This is the world of Plato and Aristotle. It is a, uh, the city of Athens is at this point uh, the world's first known democracy. They have uh, huge festivals of drama, all these things that we're very used to, the Olympics, all these kind of iconic elements are uh, not just forged but at their kind of zenith during this period. However, Greece is not a, it's not a country like we would think of, uh, well, we'd like to talk about Greece in the ancient world. It is not actually a country. It's made up of hundreds and hundreds of little city states. The only, the only thing that really links them is their heritage and they share certain language traits and uh, their religion. Their religion is one of the key elements that really links them as a culture. Um, so they consider each other Greek, but that isn't as strong a connection as being Athenian and being with another Athenian or a Spartan or a Argive or anything like that. Okay, so I'm I'm getting the picture in my mind. Clearly, this is uh, this is the kind of cultural and um, geographical environment that might encourage a lot of warfare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you, you're spot on. You're absolutely spot on. So it's a highly competitive environment as well. Um, uh, I think it's Plato who uh, claims that actually every city-state is in an informal state of war against every other city-state at any given time. Possibly an exaggeration, but it gives you an idea. Yeah, this is one of conflict. This is one of um, scarce resources. Um, and so if someone has a bit more than you, you go and take it if you can. Got it. All right. So all the secret knowledge one could acquire, the better. Owen, what is a mantis? Okay, so yes, this is uh, the, probably the most important question we can answer today. A mantis. Um, a mantis is individual in the Greek world who, the easiest way to describe him is he's uh, like a freelance religious expert. Okay, so he's not associated um, with temples or with the big oracles uh, such as Delphi. He's a freelancer. Uh, he's almost uh, nomadic. I keep saying he. There are also female um, mantis, so they. Let's go with they. Um, their predominant role is to come along and answer questions that people need ask, answering, and they do this usually through reading of omens. Another role, another job they would have is spiritual purification. So, for uh, for instance, if there is a death in the family or if someone does something that is considered spiritually polluting your home in particular would need purification um, if it is a particularly 
difficult job to achieve that, you would not do it yourself. You would hire a mantis to come in and do that. So a mantis, yeah, the easiest way to think about a mantis is this freelance religious expert comes and sorts your religious, your spiritual problems for you. Um, let's, let's zero in, go right down into the mantis's head. Think of one particular mantis. It's the start of a typical day. How does it begin for them? What are their most pressing responsibilities? So the mantis, as a mantis wakes up, he wait, you know, they wake up as uh, any Greek would. Uh, they get themselves out of bed. They grab themselves some barley bread, dip it in some wine, call it breakfast, um, and they go out for the day. A mantis's most pressing concern, like any freelancer, is the next paycheck. I was wondering if that was what you were going to say. Okay. Uh, and, you know, that's the reality of it. Um, now, of course, a good mantis um, doesn't need to necessarily go looking for work every single day. Um, they will have clients, they'll have regulars, shall we say, um, who will uh, bring them into read omens for a multitude of different things. Don't forget, ancient Greece is a world of the gods. It is the world of the divine. They mm. are constantly looking for the gods agreement or say on things um, before they make big decisions, whether it's should um, I marry my daughter off to that gentleman? And of course the daughter then wants to know, you know, is this a good idea for me? Um, not that she unfortunately had much say in that. Um, but you know, it's also things like, should we go to war? Should we engage in this business deal? Should we, you know, any major question they want an answer to. And uh, the gods are a, constant presence in every area of their life um so in that respect if you're a good mantis chances are the first thing you're doing after your breakfast is going off to your first client okay and do you pay house calls oh yes you pay house calls you certainly do pay house calls um you will go around um if you don't have regular clients um i mean just uh, it sounds quite flippant but a lot of the great names from the classical world um including the end of the classical world alexander the great for instance you know the most famous person really from um, this region um had a, a mantis with him at all times he had his favorite mantis he had a group of them but he had his favorite who he always had with him you know on a retainer oh. so to so, speak okay so that's that's an employment gig so it was possible to oh have yes yeah, it is certainly possible, but for the majority, it is freelance. It's a nomadic life. You move on if you need okay. to to find more work. Okay, so your mantis has got a gig set up. He's got an appointment. He arrives at his client's abode. What what happens next? What happens next is he gets told what the problem is. Because, um, again, the mantis, unless he knows in advance or unless she knows in advance, they don't know necessarily what they're walking into. They just know that they're needed. So, for instance... Let's flip this round and say that it's not actually an appointment, but they've knocked on the door, which we are told by some very scathing sources they did, like a door-to-door -door salesman. Oh, <laughs> hey, you need any insight into the future today? Yeah, yeah, you making any big decisions? Um, so, oh, really? Really? Yes, you've got to think about the the guile, the gumption, the uh, the the, um, the confidence. So, um, I mean, the chances are you'll be walking into either a purification case or an omen reading more often than not. Um, and then you, but ultimately, like a good con man, you direct where you can work best. So you go in and they go, oh, we need an answer about this. 
Um, and if you're a very good reader of, I don't know, birds, for instance, the flight of birds, um, you take them outside and you read the birds, you know. Um, so you can control the job in a, in a very small way um, so that you get to do what it is you know and more confident in doing. Um, but ultimately, you don't know. Um, so you walk in and uh, let's say it's, should I marry my daughter off to Joe Bloggs down the road? Um, and you go, let us ask the question to the gods. You take them outside because you're, you're, you prefer to read The Flight of Birds. Now, I keep saying the reading The Flight of Birds, and there's a reason why. It is a really popular omen reading um, system okay. where you literally stand, look outside, look out, like stand outside your door, look up into the sky, and basically you're waiting to see the direction in which a bird flies. Does it fly to the right? Does it fly to the left? That's it. <laughs> Greek omen, Greek omen reading predominantly asks yes or no questions. They don't ask for specifics. They don't ask for insight. They're not trying to read the world and the universe around them. They're answering yes or no. Do the gods approve? Do the gods disapprove? Well, your example of do they fly left or right? I'm sorry. It, it just makes me think of something like swiping right or left. <laughs> yeah. We're talking about a, a matchmaking situation. Um, what, was there a customary meaning for a flock of birds flying left versus right? Um, if I remember this correctly, it is left is usually bad, as in negative. Oh. Um, so the gods don't seem to approve. Um, our, or they could fly right, and then that usually means that they do approve. I say usually, because another important skill of an omen reader is to gauge what their client wants to do right so it is not good practice if you want regular employment to keep telling them things that is the opposite of what they want to do <laughs> well i suppose could one say the birds are flying left uh, if we were standing on the other side of the flock or something like that <laughs> I, mean, you know, I used to wonder how one might we're, we're talking about um relativity of perceptions and uh, yeah not be well and also um <clears throat> You're absolutely right in that in that regard. Uh, possibly a bit too cynical, uh, but absolutely right. Um, the other option is, of course, this is a you have a um, reciprocal relationship with the gods. It's not a nice relationship. Don't get me wrong, but it is a reciprocal one. You can bribe them. So if you bribe the gods after a negative response, you bribe them and go, "I'll do this. I'll do that. I'll you know make a sacrifice straight away," and then you can get the mantis to ask again. Okay. And this is the beautiful pragmatism of uh, Greek religion. Uh, if you don't like your answer, you can just keep asking. Yeah, like, a, <laughs> like one of those magic eight balls. Um, but no, it, it does make sense. But it, it also, I mean, just in broader anthropological terms, uh, people want to feel like they have some control over what often feels utterly out of control, you know, especially in a time like this. And, and that makes such sense that that these ancient Greek people seeking the advice of a mantis wanted to do anything they could to feel that, you know, it wasn't just up to the, the whimsy of fate. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. Um, the element of control cannot be ignored. That's also true with the nature of their religion generally with the uh, giving of sacrifices, the giving of gifts. Um, wow. I, you know, I kind of describe it as the bribing of the gods, but that's fundamentally what mm -hmm. you're trying to achieve. What is the 
protocol for this interaction between the mantis and the clients during the actual omen reading process? Well, this is the interesting thing about the omen reading process, which is, of course, I've just described to you a, a very important set of omen reading, the birds flying right or left. How long do you think it seriously takes for anyone to be able to read that sign? And this is the problem the mantis always has, which is so many of these signs can be read by anyone. If they brought in a mantis, more often than not, it's because it's an important decision and they want an expert to be able to get this right. Um, but of course, that puts you open to scrutiny. It's a bit like taking your, you know, your dad, who used to be a mechanic, with you to get your car fixed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, it, um, it adds a level of scrutiny um, to the expert. And, you know, that's, that's the reality of the job. Well, so it's a little bit of a dance. It's almost, it sounds almost, uh, on the one hand, a s sort of a mutual suspension of disbelief, even though everybody's kind of holding together uh, sort of the, the, the notion and the deep belief that, that this is an important ceremony in society. It means something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, what we also need to sort of throw in here. It's not so much a matter of disbelief. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are definitely accusations of charlatanism. So there are certain mantes, uh, which is the plural of mantis. Uh, there are certain mantes who are uh, accused of basically being frauds. But that never undermines that a, a real mantis exists. It never undermines that these omens can be read. So if you are stood there watching the omens being read and you don't necessarily know this mantis, there is also a sense of what well, is he right? Do we trust him? Mm. Um, has he misread the omen? You know, it's just that kind of um, security net, shall we say, like a safety net. If a client disliked the outcome of mm -hmm. their initial omen reading, what would, they, what would they say and what would they do? Let's just stay in this moment, we're in this day. Let's, you know, imagine it just kind of hour by hour. So what happens next? What would happen next if they'd got an omen they didn't want? Well, they've got two options, really. Um, well, actually, no, they have three options. The first one is ask again. You know, just check, just check we didn't get it wrong. Can they do it right away? Pretty much, yeah. Um, the whole idea is it's what they're reading with the bird fly or any other other omens. It's, it's the idea of randomization. This is something humans can't control. And so if it is to be read, it's because the gods have controlled it in some way or they're influencing it in some mm. way. Um, so just ask it again. Um, and of course, if you then get a second reading or you get a different reading, you now have another decision to make. If, so that's one option. Uh, it's not a common option, I should point out, but you certainly could do it. And we see this in um, military contexts quite a lot, where obviously the pragmatism of war demands, yeah, but I know we, this is a good tactical moment to attack. <laughs> Sorry, there's a famous story um, at the Battle of Plataea where the Spartans are facing off against the Persians. They're part of a massive um, uh, coalition of Greek, of Greek forces against a massive Persian army. And the Spartans are at the point where the Spartan arrows are actually landing on them. But they're standing still because they're waiting for the omens to be read. Wow. <laughs> and uh, the omens keep being read and it's the... Um, it's a sphagia. It's, um, it's the blood flow. So you cut the throat of a sacrificial goat, usually a she goat, and then you're watching the blood move. And it's the movement of the blood that basically you're reading. Um, again, random, uncontrollable. 
um and it keeps saying not a good time this is not a good time um oh. and herodotus tells this story where they just keep slitting more throats of these she goats i apologize for how graphic this is but it is in the source material and it's just yeah. the ludicrousness of this and perhaps it is an exaggeration but it gives you the idea that in some situations you just keep asking so they're not running they're standing they're, slitting they're standing the goat they're dying goat. go after go arrows are landing their own allies the Tegeans. There's a, there's a small group of Tegeans with them who go, this is ridiculous, and they charge the Persians by themselves. The reason why you keep doing this is because, like we've said it before, it's because it has to be done. You have to have the gods on your side. You can be as cynical as you want about perhaps the general who is watching the mantis and keeps saying, do it again, do it again, do it again. You can be as cynical as you want about that entire process. The men in the army, the family in the house, will not react will not act will not make a decision until these omens have been conclusively read well and that's proof right there of the fundamental deep belief that underlies this this yeah. profession and the important actions absolutely what seems utterly illogical and and downright dangerous <laughs> so like going back to the family like one option ask again just keep asking like the spartans in battle just keep asking um Another option is go and do something for, the, for a particular god or the gods more generally. Um, religion in the Greek world is not only a public affair at festivals and at temples with massive sacrifices. It is also a private affair in the home. So you could literally return to your home, as in just turn around, back in the door, maybe go to your hearth. So this is the big family fire uh, by which all um, rituals are usually conducted. And he's mm. also the um, place of Hestia, goddess of the hearth. Ah, oh, right. Okay. You know, you've got lots of different gods and goddesses you could then go and perhaps speak with. Or, of course, you could just go straight to Apollo, god of prophecy, most likely the one you do believe is giving you those signs, or at least is able to communicate some way with humans as the god of prophecy. You know, you have quite a few options. And did people think that they could communicate directly with Apollo? And it, when you mention Apollo, I think of the female oracles of ancient Greece. And I wonder how those individuals compared to the mantis. Yeah. So this brings us into the business of prophecy more generally uh, or divination more generally. The oracle. And you're absolutely right. It's the female Pythia um, at Delphi. It has positives and negatives over a mantis. Positive over a mantis is an oracle directly channels the gods so the gods speak through her a mantis cannot talk to the gods he can only read or she can only read the signs that the gods control okay so a mantis also can't really help you uh interact with the gods he can only really tell you what the gods may be trying to say and you'll remember as i said earlier that can only be yes or no so there's nothing in depth here an oracle on the other hand can channel a complete answer usually from um apollo at delphi or dodona uh, another um, famous oracle which channels zeus um problem there twofold um first of all they speak in tongues so um the oracle herself the delphi uh, sorry the pythia herself does not speak greek so the only people that can understand it are the priests the priests 
listen to what she says, and then they translate it into Greek. It sounds conveniently like the um, Catholic priests at, at a time when the Mass was not in the vernacular and everything was in Latin and they interpreted everything, right? In oh, service yeah, life. you're absolutely right. I mean, don't ever, under, you could, we can never underestimate the power of language. If you can control language, you can control knowledge. Ancient Egypt, the hieroglyphs cannot be read by most normal people. That is a sacred language of the priesthood and the elite. Latin um, in the Catholic Church, you're absolutely right. Um, the great revolution of religion is the moment where they start to translate the Bible That's into right. other languages. Right. None, of, none of this is by accident. Oh, and can you tell us how someone became a mantis? Yeah, uh, to become a mantis is, um, to the Greeks, family is very important, lineage. Is important to prove that you are a good mantis you talk about your lineage and you need to be able to trace your lineage back to a very famous mantis Usually, so it, it was something that a, a profession that was passed down from parent to child that's the that's the image the greeks like to present mm -hmm. however we know because they slip up every now and then we know <laughs> that you could train to be one Okay, tell me about that. So you could become basically an apprentice. Um, you join what can only really be described as a guild, like a guild of uh, mantes. Um, and that guild is usually associated with a lineage. Um, so you join that. Um, you need the right characteristics um, to be a good mantis. So of course, you know, they don't just take anyone. Um, and we don't know what particularly drove someone to become one, but we do know to be a good one, you needed to be charismatic. You needed to be intelligent. You needed to be devout. Um, you needed to be adaptable, but the big thing time and time again, is you had to be charismatic. You've got to be able to exude confidence in your reading, exude confidence in your understanding and knowledge of these omens purification rituals uh whatever it is i mean uh, the other one i forgot to mention is another job of a mantis was to write cursed tablets oh that sounds These, like a fun one yeah exactly so you know uh we're told uh that people would go and find a mantis and go can you write me um uh, basically uh, basically can you do harm to my enemy down the road he's annoying me she's annoying me can you make them wake up with warts on their face um, so they would write uh very particular curse tablets and of course you then need the opposite role so if someone's writing a curse tablet you need to be able to defend yourself. Um, so they would also be hired to create clay or wax. It's wax, wax dolls, effigies, basically. Tiny little effigies. Oh. Like, um, I'm really, really uh, trying to avoid the analogy of a voodoo doll. I wasn't going to say it. Yeah. You said it. Thank you. <laughs> it has a very long European uh, lineage, uh, uh, the, the doll of that. And this is one of the earliest. This is why, go back to what we said at the very beginning, the importance of cultural relativity, the, the importance of, um, you know, just because a doll is being used in a particular way does not make it the same. Um, so to the Greeks, you would have a wax doll made of you, usually put perhaps on your doorstep. And the idea is that would attract any of the bad, evil energy, for want of a better word, uh, being directed towards you. I see. Was the, the idea that whatever evil influence it was would come to this wax effigy before it even entered the home and could affect you. 
exactly exactly that and you know it's it's very interesting that if it is put in the doorway which is of course a trans uh, a transient space it is a liminal space it's ones of coming and going but it doesn't enter the domestic space which is actually a sacred space as well as a living area and so on oh and did the practices of the mantes emerge spontaneously within greek culture or do you see any influences from outside from other cultures or earlier cultures that the Greeks might have known about? So the first thing to keep in mind when we're talking about sort of uh, cultural movement and cultural understanding of other cultures around the world, around not the world, but certainly Europe, the Mediterranean and the Near East and India uh, as well, just about, um, is these aren't cultures that are independent from each other. There's lots of coming and going. So the big... Right. Um, academic opinion at the moment um, that seems to be consensus is that the divination of the Greeks that we're talking about, the mantis, comes from the Near East. It's a Near Eastern um, form of prophecy that comes over. But what doesn't come over with them are the textbooks from the Near East. So it does seem to be a Near Eastern way of uh, divination that they're emulating. But so that the they're adapting because they don't have, adapting, they don't yeah. have the instructions. <laughs> yeah, they don't have the instructions. They don't have the um, they don't have the infrastructure in the same way. So you wonder, you know, this is where you sort of play with your imagination. How did it come over? Logically, either Greeks went over there and brought it back, or perhaps more simply, uh, people from the Near East, maybe sort of Lydia, Phrygia, so sort of modern day Turkey, came over. Um, and practice their forms of divination. Now they've got an immediate problem in Greece, which is that they're foreign. The Greeks are many things, but welcoming mm-hmm. is not one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're good at your job, that's fine. They'll let you stay. Um, but you're not a citizen. You know, you don't, you don't get all the rights. Um, so you've now got these potentially foreign um, omen readers and the like going about. Um, but of course, then you, you'll have Greeks learning from them and then they'll be able to do things that a foreign omen reader won't be allowed to do because they won't be allowed to necessarily come into politics. They won't necessarily right. be allowed to come into certain areas, but a Greek would. And of course, a Greek would also understand the religious framework within which this divination is taking place. We also know that divination evolves during the classical period. So the reason why I said, I'm not just talking about ancient Greece or the ancient world, um, because it changes and it changes quite a lot um, as more and more cultures interact. Um, So for instance, the Greeks did not read the stars. The idea of astrology does not really interest the Greeks in the classical period, but it does Mm. by the end of the Hellenistic period, which is the sort of the beginning of sort of the height of the Roman Republic. So a few centuries later, then they do, they are interested in stars, but the reading of stars has been, you know, we know the Egyptians seem to be interested in it. The Babylonians, the Assyrians before the Greeks, all interested in it. Afterwards, the Near East is always fascinated with reading the stars. It's the reason why they're so, um, good at navigation uh, the uh, the Phoenicians for instance great navigators of the sea um, the reading of the stars the mapping of the stars this is not just omen reading it's not just divination this is also uh, geography this is maritime knowledge this you know it brings so much more knowledge than that and the cultures of the Near East the cultures of North Africa knew this the Greeks not so much um, they, they kind of separate yeah. these a little bit to begin with 
I'm always amazed at how much scientific and mathematical knowledge specifically came from the, from the, the far and the Near East. Oh, absolutely. The idea that our cultural legacy comes from um, Greece and Rome is, is delusional. Yeah, it's what we're taught at school and it's just plain wrong. So <laughs> it, it, it is plain wrong. Greece, Greece is good. Rome often has this reputation of just taking on other cultures and just being like the big, what, the big power and it nicks everyone else's culture. It's often what Greek historians say about the Romans. They just do what the Greeks did. Yeah. And, that's it. Um, and then they ignore that that's pretty much what the Greeks do with other cultures <laughs> and you know what and so it goes right what and the Greeks the wheel? no absolutely but the Greeks also knew this so Herodotus who is the father of history as he's often called um, a title he was given by the great Roman Cicero um, but he's also a great ethnographer really interested yeah. in other cultures yeah. And he spends a long time saying, oh, the Egyptians do this, and that's why we now do it. Oh, this goes on in uh, the Near East, and that's why we now do it. You know, he's really aware of the idea that Greek culture comes from somewhere else, or bits of Greek culture come from somewhere else. He's often got it wrong, but the idea, so for instance, he says the Egyptians do things that there's no evidence the Egyptians did at all, but we do find in... Uh, modern day Turkey in uh, Asia Minor. Um, so the idea that this culture is coming from outside of Greece, he is absolutely right about. But you can't really blame him for not necessarily knowing where. I'm curious about how this apprenticeship system worked. So people couldn't just rock up at the door and say, train me to be a mantis. You have some sort of credentials. You somehow are admitted to this guild based on the credentials of your lineage. What happened once you're in this apprenticeship system? Well, once you're in, this is where um, the role of a, um, a hardcore historian suddenly becomes one of an imaginative writer, um, because this is obviously shrouded in secrecy. Ah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Secret um, knowledge, for sure. Exactly that. Um, it's not the same as other forms of divination. There's not a lot of book learning. So a lot of this is learned on the job. So for me, the only way this really makes sense is if you literally shadow a mantis. Um, that would be my, that would be what I would expect to see. You shadow an experienced mantis, you learn on the job as you go along. Um, but of course, religion is every part uh, part of everyday life. So you know you don't necessarily be having to be taken out to jobs to be shown how to read an omen, because you could just be doing them you know, uh, within your guild, within the gymnasium, wherever it is you are. Um, you just need an experienced person to help you with it and talk you through it. No, so the, the final point there is um, it is a hands-on um, profession. And so the apprenticeship itself has to be hands-on as well. Yes, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And, and what I'm sort of imagining here is, from the way you describe it at least, the mantis had to read omens, yes, but really the mantis had to read people, had to read people around him and the reactions to the birds flying over. If everybody had at least a passing knowledge of what the birds going left versus right might mean, it's not that the mantis sees the birds flying a different direction. It's that the mantis sees his client seeing that and figures out how to respond. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Um, is such an important uh, part of their job is to be able to read people. But on the same token, 
we know that Mantes would give readings people didn't like. Um, but of course, how many of them can you really get away with giving? Um, but you know, you're absolutely right. It's about reading people. And that, again, as we all know, can only come from experience. Um, interestingly, the Greeks associate these skills with a gift. So yes, you can learn them, but ultimately it's a gift given to you. Um, and to them, um, it's quite revolting. Um, it seems to be related to um, uh, bodily fluids. Um, so we often hear oh. of this gift being given via saliva, so spitting oh. in the mouth. Um, and we actually have one example where a mantis is so angry with a younger mantis that he says, give me back your gifts. And so he makes him spit in his mouth. And how was the mantis paid? Cash in hand, like any ah. good freelancer. Um, <laughs> so a mantis is paid cash in hand. Um, it seems to be the criticism aimed at them is that it's very expensive uh, for charlatanism. Okay, this is the common thing. You know, you're paying a lot of money for something that they're just making up. This is the criticism we hear from Plato in particular. Mm -hmm. um, however, like, one of the most expensive ones I've seen is um, you pay by each omen reading. Um, so you make an omen, you pay them that. If you ask them to do another one, you pay them for that service. Okay. So um, unless they want a retainer fee. I was going to say, was there not a subscription plan? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. And yet we know of one example um, who's a Greek mantis, but in a Persian mercenary army. So it's a Persian who's, who's um, paying him. Um, mm -hmm. And he makes one prediction. That's it. He makes one prediction and his prediction turns out to be correct. And the, uh, the Persian commander, Cyrus the Younger, who's also a, uh, basically a prince um, of the Persian Empire, um, he pays him an amount of 10 talents. Now, 10 talents is hard to equate to modern money. Um, I'll tell you now, it's a lot. Um, but 10 talents is the same as fully funding 10 Athenian warships including oh. the wage of every person on the ship. Yeah, so you're talking a phenomenal wow. amount of money. And that is what he is paid for making one prediction correctly. Admittedly, by a very wealthy man. <laughs> it gives you context of just how much money they could accumulate. Although, interestingly, um, a mantis in an Athenian army is also a combatant. So we do hear of mantis dying in battle. Oh, so that what did they? Oh, t tell me about that. Did they? Yeah, so there's a real. Yeah, absolutely, soldiers? absolutely, they did. Especially if they're citizens. Well, even if they're not citizens, um, they could still be enrolled in the army. Um, so you know, they did fight alongside. Um, they did die. The Athenians uh, commemorated their war dead, um, and they repatriated the waters. It's a huge ceremony, um, and it's the one we copy to this day. So big lists on oh, stone really? of the names of the deceased, you know, the ones who fell, the fallen. Um, and we see a mantis is often labeled his name and then the word mantis to make sure you know he is a mantis. Um, so it is um, a marker of respect. But of course, if he's died in battle, either he hasn't read an omen very well, yeah, I was just going to say, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, 
The or the other option um, is, and we hear this in myth quite a lot, which is that a um, a mantis reads the omen that he is going to die, and so he has to decide: does he meet his fate or not? And what always happens in myth, and what happens in at least one historical example, someone um, who was at Thermopylae the famous um, last stand, or stand, shall we say, of the Greeks, not mm -hmm. just the Spartans, but the Greeks. Um, the mantis from Akinania, a guy called uh, Megistias, um, knew they were going to die, knew he was going to die, and still entered the battlefield. Um, wow. And there is mythical uh, precedent for it. Um, Amphiaraos. Uh, is a mantis who famously saw his own death as well. Um, and the marker of him uh, knowing this was going to happen, he'd already read the omen, and it was to do with the relationship with his wife. His wife, um, basically, hand, uh, it's related to his wife's necklace. And as soon as he sees the necklace, he realizes, oh, this is my time. So he goes out and he dies. This is where the debate lies. You know, is that harrowing? Is it emotionally tumultuous? Or is it actually freeing? I, I would say one might say anything applies, but the reality is if you believe in in the power of fate and you believe in a good death, I don't know, I would probably vote for freeing. And were political leaders or military brass ever threatened by the power and influence of a mantis since they were so important in all of these decisions, it sounds like? Yeah, we we are told um, by Xenophon. Xenophon is a Greek writer. He writes most of his work in the fourth century, so towards the end of the period we're talking about here. Um, and he's a historian. He's a polymath. Uh, he writes historical fiction. He writes uh, romantic work, um, but he also writes uh, manuals, military manuals, because he's an experienced general or commander. And he writes a manual about how to be a cavalry commander. And in it, he talks about a mantis. Now, he reiterates time and again how important it is that the omens are read, how important this is. And then he says, it is important for a commander to know how to read the basic signs so that basically he can protect himself from a mantis. Um, mm. You know, he, he can not give over that much power to one individual that he keeps it for himself at some level you know if there's something that's completely wrong he can go well i, I don't think it was that clear do it again um perhaps we'll do a different mm -hmm. form of omen mm -hmm. reading because that that's not a very uh, specific one uh, for what i need um you know so he even advises get yourself a basic understanding um, of omen reading so that um exactly what you're saying you don't hand over that power entirely to one individual or two individuals. So what would you say is the closest modern equivalent of the job of a mantis today? Oh, see, the, the obvious answer would, of course, be our own um, prophetic industry. So tarot reading, um, astrology, um, runes, you know, uh, people who still try and gauge uh, answers from the divine. Um, and who interestingly use randomization to achieve that. Tarot cards is entirely mm. based on randomization. What is it? 72 cards, uh, maybe in a, um, an array of 10 
cards drawn usually by you which have already been shuffled um and, you know those 10 right. cards are drawn into a particular a card, order well it, again it's easy to be flippant but it's the the shape where the card is in the shape that you've drawn often determines what aspect that card relates to so it's real randomization that they can try to achieve 72 cards let's say it's there's 10 that's drawn each of those uh, positions where it's drawn means something different so you've got those mm -hmm. 10 could have been put in any of those 10 positions times that by the 72 cards that could have been drawn times that by the number of times it's been shuffled this is hugely randomized you're looking at someone who's trying to gauge reactions you're looking at someone who's trying who's being asked constantly for their advice but actually doesn't hold political power doesn't have a right right do this but is so highly respected and trusted that their answer is accepted. Over here, we have a particular uh, political scandal at the moment um, with a political which advisor. One? Which oh, which one? one? Is a, a guy <laughs> by the name of guy by the name of Dominic <laughs> Cummings. Dominic Cummings. Yeah, Dominic Cummings is a political advisor to our Tory party, the party that's in power. He is someone who is, people have gone to for answers on questions, advice on things. He's often described in this very Svengali, almost Rasputin way by our right. newspapers. But ultimately, if you want to look for someone who's politically influential, who's used to read wider signs, for him, it's the signs of the public. He's getting that very wrong right now, but he got it concerningly right over the past few years that's why he's so um popular in his job although i should point out he's not he's not popular as a person um, well it depends it depends also let's just be honest largely what your view was on brexit <laughs> so we're not going there <laughs> so i one of the other areas i work on is the not just the relationship with ancient history and the modern world. I also work on how the modern world is misused. Oh, sorry, the modern world misuses the ancient world for its own gain. Um, so my own work looks at this in terms of um, medicine and um, trauma theory and how it is relied on the ancient world to fill in gaps it couldn't do itself. Um, and it, misuses ancient history by doing it and other areas of course politics politicians love to refer to the ancient world to validate their own view and more often than not they get it wrong um so and this started to bug me and so for about a year i started uh, a twitter hashtag with my students called hashtag bad ancient ah, i just, love it we just compiled lots of examples anytime we saw it whether it was Boris Johnson talking about Athenian democracy or whether it was Donald Trump saying we should invest in uh, what was it classical architecture and that you know he was talking about bringing a law to make all state buildings and civic buildings using that kind of architecture neoclassical you know um, we see it sort of everywhere it's used to sell us things you know and you know we see the kardashians dress up as cleopatra in the ridiculous cliched way and you know we, we hear people say there were no people of african descent in ancient britain and things like this um, and it's all wrong and it's being done to perpetuate modern ideas some of it political quite serious some of it you know, it's flippant you know um the film 300 is full of, full of them, um, if you've ever seen it. Um, so what we did, uh, we created this list, and it's still ongoing. Anyone can jump on if you ever yeah, see anything. So can, um, we, can we do it now? That's so great. 
Yeah, so uh, that's up and running on Twitter. Um, hashtag Bad Ancient. Anyone can go on there. Um, you're usually... Uh, find me on there moaning about something um we have a website which is badancient.com which is going live and you can submit questions like oh i keep hearing this is it true i see um oh i don't know uh fox news have said this about the roman world is it true the bbc have claimed this about the end of the roman empire is it true and we'll fact check it for you it's me and as a team involved um, of historians, ancient historians, archaeologists, anthropologists. Oh, what a great idea. Um, um, and if anyone wants to get involved, they can always drop us an email. Oh, definitely have to check that out, Owen. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining us today. This has been an incredibly fascinating conversation um, about the surprising complexities that emerge when you really examine the prophecy industry, so to speak, in ancient Greece, and specifically the role of the mantis within it. Well, yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. It is, it is a really interesting topic and I'm glad I've been able to uh, have the opportunity to uh, to talk about it and to uh, really explore uh, the elements of this of this really important role in ancient Greece. And it's so important um, for the male or female mantis um, and their, their influence in the world around them. Every aspect of ancient Greek society was deeply interlaced with religion. Decisions, large or small, called for divine consultation. Through our modern eyes, it's tempting to look back at such beliefs as naive, even foolish. But the truth is, gods are not. Soothsaying, or the promise of it, is still big business. In our modern secular world, the practice of predicting the future whether for personal interest or as part of institutional or political jockeying, remains as popular as ever. The internet teams with astrology websites promising tailor-made horoscopes, and pundits tell us what the omens, social and economic, really mean. And as we know, interpreting the signs often seems to be not so much about reading the birds or the Tao, but reading people. As long as there are those who purport to be prophets, there will be people willing to listen and to pay through the nose for the privilege of it. I hope you learned as much about the life of a Greek mantis as I did. Be sure to check out Dr. Owen Reese and hashtag BadAncient and submit your questions to BadAncient.com. In the era of fake news, more than ever before, we need informed sources to separate the wheat from the chaff of the information firehose that is modern popular media. Until next time, as always, thanks for listening. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger. Nigel Hetherington, Aiden Law Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on Instagram at Working Overtime Series. Thanks for listening, and remember to like and subscribe.